We're going to be reading out of Mark chapter 13. And I want you to remember that the topic that we're on is we are, we are right now, of course, in the chronological life of Jesus. It's still the Tuesday of the last week of his life. And we are studying the Olivet Discourse. There's more written on this particular event than any other, any other, anything else in the Bible. There's four chapters over the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's all of Mark chapter 13, all of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and, and all of, uh, almost all of Luke chapter 21. And what this is, is it's all based upon three questions that have occurred. Three questions that, that uh, uh, were asked of Jesus by his disciples. And the three questions were these. What is the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the sign of your second coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Those three questions, Jesus, there's four chapters in the Gospels written, written about this where Jesus is answering that. So it's really gracious of him to give them signs for these things that are coming. And he even says to them, remember that I've told you all this in advance. We've already covered two of the questions. The one remaining question is, what is the sign of your second coming? So we've already covered two of them. The, the last question that remains is, what's the sign of your second coming? And before he goes into that, he gives them a prelude on the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period. And it's very specific that it's seven years. And uh, uh, he, sometimes then the Bible refers to it as 1,260 days plus 1,260 days plus 30 days. And so there's, it's broken into two halves of approximately 1,260 days each. So if you take 1,260 plus 1,260 plus 30, you get 2,550, divide that by 7, and it is indeed 364.2 days per year. And so it, it really is quite precise. So you, you can try to, try to slice it up any other way, but the tribulation is going to be a seven-year period, and it's broken up into two halves. And we already covered the first half, of what it's going to be like. We are not living in the tribulation period for sure. We are not. There are many signs of the tribulation. Now, you may have tribulations in your life, and the Bible says that, that through many tribulations you shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is not the tribulation, that, that precise seven-year period. The first half of the tribulation starts out with the signing of a covenant between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist. The second half of the tribulation, which is where we'll start at today, Jesus says starts with, with the, the uh, Antichrist setting himself up as God in the temple that is going to be in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Now, we know that we're not in the tribulation period because if you go to the Temple Mount today, there is no Jewish temple there. There is a mosque there. There's the Dome of the Rock and the mosque is there. That mosque... It says the one day isn't going to be there. It says there is going to be a Jewish temple there. That's what the scriptures say. And the Antichrist will set himself up as God. And that's what's called in the second half of the tribulation as the abomination of desolations. That starts the second half of, of, the, uh, of the tribulation period. It's called the abomination of desolations. It's spoken about and it's referred to that several times in the Bible. And Daniel is, is the initial prophecy of it. And Jesus then goes on to talk about what's going to happen. So we're going to read in Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 14. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountain. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it does not happen in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus said, I'm telling you in advance exactly what's going to happen. And if you read in in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew reports that he says a few other things. He says, not only don't just pray that it doesn't happen in winter, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. And and, uh, so in other words, and this is in Matthew 24, verse 15 through 28, we're not going to look at that. It's a similar portion, but but a few different uh, uh, nuances that that, that, uh, Matthew reports that Mark didn't. And so you see that, and, and we read last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, it says that he will set himself up in the temple as God. So there's, this isn't happening right now. That's going to happen at the second half of the tribulation. And so what are the Jews supposed to do? It says they are to flee to the mountains at that time. So it's really quite specific. My daughter lives in Jerusalem, and I don't worry about her. People say, oh, you know, are you really concerned? I worry more about my daughter in Houston than my other daughter in Jerusalem. And, and uh, because it's prophesied what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We don't know what's going to happen with Houston. And, and, and the scriptures are very specific that, that since Israel has come back into the land, so the state of Israel started in 1948, started back again after being gone for almost 2,000 years. I mean, what nation is birthed, as it says in the Bible, in a day? And it was in a single day. There was a vote in the United Nations. By one vote, boom, Israel was birthed again. And the prophecy was fulfilled. And then they got Jerusalem. They didn't have Jerusalem. They had Israel, but not Jerusalem. And then they were attacked in 1967. And in the Six-Day War, they got Jerusalem. And it was just by a bunch of retired old men that actually, because all the troops were out fighting and, 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 and uh, it was sort of like the National Guard, the, the older men who couldn't do anything else, ended up taking Jerusalem. And, uh, uh, and so that was in 1967. They will not leave Jerusalem again, except once. And that is here in the second half of the tribulation where they will flee. They will flee to a city called Petra, it's either Petra or Basra. Basra in the Hebrew, Petra in the Greek. And if you look up the, the, the city of Petra today, it's in present-day Jordan. It's just across the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, south of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to drive from Jerusalem today to Petra, I'm guessing you could do it in an hour and a half, something like that. Except you're going to get stopped at the border because you've got to go into another country, in, into Jordan because on the other side of the Jordan River right now is, is the nation of Jordan. So it's not far. But he says, when you flee, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Why? What's the problem in winter? It's not a snow problem in Israel. It's actually a flooding problem. So Israel 
isn't, isn't like, like, like Houston that has rain all year. It has a season of rain, and the season of rain starts in late October, early November, right around this time, and it will go through until through March, and then dies out in about April, and they have the rainy season. So what happens is there's a lot of mountains, and a lot of water can come rushing down, and they, they have these what are called wadis. These are these, these riverbeds that are just dry. And uh, during the rainy season, these can just fill up very rapidly. In fact, every year during the rainy season, people die. They're out hiking in the wadis, and water can come rushing in very fast because it's not raining where you are, but it's raining in the mountains, and water just comes, comes barreling down there, and it happens every year. But what they do is they build their roads right down into the wadis and across. If you see the way in the United States, the way they build, when you have a river bed that's not filled, they actually build a bridge across the river bed, and that's how the highways are built here. So whether there's water in it or not, they just build a bridge knowing that when it rains, it could accumulate there, so they build a bridge over it. In Israel, they go right down into the wadi and then back up the other side. So those things get flooded out quite a lot in the winter time. So it makes sense. And it says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is just one day. Why, why, how long? Because the fleeing doesn't take very long. Remember I told you it takes about an hour and a half to drive from Jerusalem to Petra, maybe two hours. But it, not long. And so, in other words, on the Sabbath day, there is no public transportation. You say, well, just get in your car. Well, less than one-third of the Israelis own their own car. They use public transportation because public transportation works. If you lived in Boston or if you lived in New York City, you don't need a car. I know a lot of professionals that, that are older people, not just kids, that live in Boston or in New York City, and they don't own cars because you don't need it in those cities. And... Uh, um, when I lived in Boston, I didn't need a car. And, and uh, the public tra- transportation is so good. But on the Sabbath, all public transportation shuts down. So it makes sense what he's talking about. He says, that's where you're to flee. You're, you flee up to the mountains. And he says, people are going to say, oh, God, oh, Jesus is appearing here. He's appearing there. He says, don't come out of hiding. He's warning them. So he's giving them all of these warnings. And he's talking to them, and he's very specific. This is going to be a second 1,260 days. And then right after that, there's going to be a 30-day period uh, 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 just before the Lord returns. And then he goes in, he says, okay, now you know about the tribulation. We are not living in the tribulation, period. Sure, we have tribulations in our life, but it is not that period. And then he says, then he starts answering for them his the, the third unanswered question, and that is, what is the sign of the second coming? So now he starts to give to them the sign of the second coming. Let's look over in, uh, in, in, in uh, Mark, because since we're still there, in Mark chapters thir- chapter 13, verse, verse uh, 24 through 26. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from, the he- from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And He will send forth the angels and will gather His elect. So it's really just, just uh, 24 through, through, uh, through 26 that it says that, that it says, but in those days after the tribulation, if you read it in Matthew chapter 24 verse 29, it says immediately following this tribulation period, the Lord will return. So it's an immediate. So in other words, we can't date when the Lord's second coming will, will be. 
but one day you will be able to date it. Once the tribulation starts, once there's a signing of a covenant between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist, uh, you know that seven years from that time, the Lord is returning. It will be dateable one day, but now it's not dateable. What is utterly undateable ever is the rapture, that which will precede these events. That's when the Lord will take His church. That is undateable. And everybody who's ever tried to date it has gotten it wrong. And Jesus Himself said, no man knows this, the day or the hour. And why people want to keep saying they can figure this thing out? Because if they figure it out, it's definitely not going to happen on that day. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, that's the day it's definitely not going to happen, you can tell people. And I've seen this in my own life. I've, I've talked to people who've said it's going to happen on a certain day. I said, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. And then, it doesn't happen, and I never see these people again. Maybe they've been raptured. <laughs> and and uh, but so so it says immediately following the tribulation, the Lord will come. And what does it say? It says that there's going to be in verse 24 of Mark chapter 13. It says, "But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken." This is actually not the first blackout where there's some covering where we don't even get to see the stars. There's going to be such a thick covering. This is actually the fifth blackout. There's the first one. It's spoken about in Joel chapter 2, verse 31. That's going to happen just before the tribulation. There's another one spoken about in Revelation chapter 6 that happens in the, in, in the, in the first quarter of the tribu tribulation. Revelation chapter 9, in the second quarter, there will be another blackout. Revelation chapter 16, in the second half of the tribulation, there will be another blackout. This is the fifth, the fifth blackout, right here, right after the tribulation. Things are going to be wild on earth at that time, but then the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord will appear. And he says, I don't want you to be confused. Because people are going to say, the Lord has returned, He's over here, He's over there, and He's telling the Jews, don't come out of hiding. Don't come out of hiding. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to be, it's going to be, it talks about from, like lightning from one side of the sky to the other and he's going to come riding in the clouds. This is exactly what the angel said when Jesus was taken up in the clouds in the book of Acts. His disciples saw him rise up and then he was carried off in the clouds. And the angels were standing there and they said, why are you looking like this? Don't worry, he's going to return exactly as you have seen him be taken. And here we see in scriptures, he's going to return riding in the clouds. All eyes all over the earth are going to see him. You say, well, where are the believers, the church at that time? The church has already been taken in the rapture. But there are going to be many believers that are going to come to the Lord after the rapture. And we know that 144,000 Jews were sealed. We covered that last week. And they go out and they evangelize. And there's tons of Gentiles come through a Jewish witness. It's really quite amazing. Through a Jewish witness, they, they, come, they come to the Lord. So this is, this is what he begins to share with us. So now he's completed all three of the questions. He's completed answering. These are the signs that you're going to see, and this is when it's going to come. So he's answered all three of their questions. But he doesn't stop there. He actually continues on, and he starts sharing with them more of what's to come in the future. And one of those things is the regathering of Israel. So now he's going to regather all of Israel and bring them back to the land, all over the earth, He's going to bring them back to the land. So if you look in Mark chapter 13, verse 27, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. 
He says, I'm going to gather together Israel, his elect, from the ends of the earth, all over earth, and heaven. So in other words, you will see then, this is the prophesied resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Because what did he say? He says, in the new kingdom, you will sup, you will eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this land. That's what Jesus said. You will eat with them in this land. What did he promise to Abraham? He said, to you and to your seed, I give this land. To you and to your seed. He repeated that same promise to Abraham, and to, Isaac, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. To all three of them, he made that promise. To you and to your seed. If he had just said, to your seed, I give this land, okay, that's fine. But he said, to you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, all they owned was one burial plot and a few wells in that whole land. That's all they owned. But it says that, he says that I've given this land to you. So remember what the scriptures do. And Jesus used this as evidence for the resurrection when he was speaking to the Sadducees. What did he say? He said that, that uh, uh, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says. God is not God of, the God of the dead, but of the living. He made a promise to you and to your seeds, I will give this land. If he didn't give it to them in their, while they were alive, he's going to give it to them by raising them up. Remember, if God makes a promise to somebody and he doesn't fulfill that promise in their lifetime, he will raise them from the dead to fulfill the promise. And that's what Abraham knew. Abraham knew that through this boy Isaac, through this seed, was going to come this blessing. So he knew that he would be obliged to raise Isaac up. But he never had to, to slay Isaac. Isaac died a natural death, but he will raise him up. And he will give him that land. So he, he says that he's going to gather them together, both the living and the resurrected. Already the church is going to be resurrected, and already those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected. You say, well, what about my mother? She may, she may not be here when the Lord returns. None of us may be here when the rapture occurs. But it says that when the rapture occurs, that, and, and we'll look at this more, but it says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those believers on earth will meet them together in the air to meet the Lord. That's the promise of Scripture. So the dead in Christ have already risen. <clears throat> this is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. They were going to come and they were going to be, re they're going to be resurrected and they're going to be reunited. This is the gathering of Israel. So you have this regathering. And then he gives an exhortation in Luke. And he says, in, so let's look in, uh, um, in well, b before I do that. So, so then he goes into an exhortation. He starts speaking again about future things. Now I want to bring this back to us here and now. Now some people really love prophecy. And they, they think this is great. Other people are like, I don't care. I don't care about prophecy. When it happens, then I'll see it, all right? I mean, and that's fine. The beautiful thing about the church is we're not monolithic. Everybody is different. And I see it in my own family. I mean, I will, I will talk with my daughter about you know, certain nuances in the Scripture, my oldest daughter, and, and we'll talk about certain mountains in the Bible and what they represent. And my, my other daughter will finally say, who cares? Who cares? And, you know, my oldest daughter and I are just going at this thing and really enjoying this. And the other one's like, what is with you? She just doesn't care. And that's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. You don't have to care about the meaning behind every mountain. 
But if you care about it, fine. That's fine. And God has different people for all different tasks and all different walks. But what's interesting is that He does have some things for us here today where we live. So what I want to do is I want you to turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. And we're going to start reading from verse 1. Psalm 27, verse 1. Because though we are not in the tribulation period, we are not even in the prelude right now to the tribulation, the signs that, that, that are indicating the tribulation. Remember what we talked about, the signs in the Olivet Discourse that we have seen? We have already seen that Jesus has said what would happen, what is the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem. That took place in 70 A.D., We've already seen the beginnings of the sign of the end of the age. The beginnings of the sign of the end of the age were world wars. Wars all over the world. And we saw that in the 20th century. And then, it, then those were accompanied by signs concerning Israel. It's reestablishment. World War II was just really a continuation of World War I. And immediately after World War II, you see the establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. So you begin to see these prophecies coming about. We, we have seen the beginning of the end of the age. And we will have more signs of these in, in, in the coming years and, and may well be in our lifetimes that we see more of these signs of the coming of the end of the age. But what about for us today? Because where I live right now is the thing that impacts me the most. In other words, it's one thing to see these end of the age signs. But, you know, I just got like four exams this week. I mean, all the professors got together and they colluded. And they just put like all their exams together at the same time. I mean, that, that's what they do. That's what they go to the faculty club and they sit. How can we make it the hardest on people? How can we make their lives most difficult? And so you, you have the, these little tribulations in life that are very real. You have friends, loved ones that are sick and dying. You have pains that come in life. So the Bible gives us so much to deal with the things that, where we're living. And what I want to do is I want to begin to look at the encouragement that can come. So let's look at Psalm 27, reading from verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So look at the way he's establishing this. This is occurring. <clears throat> this is occurring. You know, David was chased continually. There was a period in David's life where he was chased by the authorities. He was chased by the Philistines. I mean, just, just, you know, chased all over Israel. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Have you ever been fearful? Have you ever been fearful about things that were coming upon you? Just all that was coming in? I mean, this happens to everyone. Have you ever sat awake at night, just woken up at night and just had so much in front of you and you're like, I can't even sleep? Has that ever happened to you? Has it? It happened to me just this week. It did. And then the scriptures, he says, he reminds us, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? The Lord is there. The Lord is the defense of our life. It says, When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of all this, I shall be confident. Look at what he does. Now, most of us, most of the problems that come at us are different and far less than what came at David. How many of you, I ask you, how many of you 
have people out there that want to kill you? Nobody. Okay. That's, that's how the majority of life is. For David, that was not the case. He had tens of thousands of troops searching for him just to kill him. So what he had is orders of magnitude greater than what we experience. Nonetheless, he says, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of all this, I shall be confident. Look at what the man does. It's as if he is speaking words of encouragement to himself. He says, though a host encamp against me, just over that hill, there's an army, a host, that is camped against me. He says, my heart will not fear. The man is quoting the scriptures to himself. My heart will not fear. The very words he's saying to himself become our scriptures. I've told you about this man before, John Penny. He was a man that was, used to sell drugs in Columbia, South Carolina. He had a radical uh, 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 salvation experience. He was shot in the back because they wanted to come in from Atlanta and take over the business of the drug sales in Columbia, South Carolina. They came in, they shot him in the back. The bullet, he told me, hit somehow off his shoulder blade. He's a very big man, and, and not, not, not fat, but strong. And it, it skimmed his shoulder blade, came, went across his back, underneath his skin, and came back out and fell on the ground. He looked down, the bullet dropped on the ground, went across his back, underneath his skin, riding across his shoulder blades. He got saved after that experience, gave his life to Jesus. I didn't know him during the, the, the bad days. I knew him very, during the good days because we attended the same church. And we used to do prison ministry together. And walking through the prison yard sometimes, all these guys would know John. He said, John, how do you know all these guys? He said, because I used to sell them all drugs. <laughs> and that's how they knew him. And he was very well known. And uh, um, so he, he owned a very little home. I would say the whole house was about the size of, of this stage area. Just a very small box, little box home. And he lived there with his wife and his two daughters. And when I went in his home, he had, he had uh, written on, on pieces of paper, on eight and a half by, by eleven pieces of paper, Scripture. And he'd stick his own name into the Scripture. So he says, so it says here, my heart will not fail. He says, John's heart will not fail. John's heart will not fear. My heart will not fear. John's heart will not fear. And he'd just stick his name into the Scriptures. Because if you take men that have come out of a past like that, he left home at the age of 14. He said he never knew his father. His mother was an alcoholic and a prostitute. He left home at the, at, in, when he was in seventh grade. And I, I had talked to men in the prison. They knew John. They said, yeah, we, we were gambling with John. And, and uh, uh, when he lost, he'd pull a gun out of his boot and he'd take his money back. So here he'd be gambling with people, but he'd get his money back if he lost. And I remember that the John, John is a very strong man, but he's, he's, not, he's not built like a basketball player. And these guys were saying, yeah, well, they were playing basketball and John couldn't play well, so he took his gun out and he shot the basketball so nobody could play. I mean, this was a rough guy in his day. You take a man like this and you say, what can change his heart so dramatically? so dramatically that he's going and ministering the love of God to people. 
He stuck his name into the scriptures and called that upon himself. Every one of us will go through tribulations in our lives. Take your name and just place it right in the context of the scriptures and call that down upon yourself and watch the power of God fill you. He says, he says uh, in verse 3, The war rise against me in spite of all this, I shall be confident. Huh? A war is arising against me. We're generally used to wars arising against a nation. So you have a lot of people saying, War arose against David. Saul took his troops out in search of David. Not to wipe out a nation, but to wipe out David. He says that, that the war rise against me in spite of all this, I shall be confident. He's speaking the word of God into his own life. If you will learn to take the word of God and speak it into your own life, there is great power. There is great power in taking the word of God and speaking it into your own life. And what I share with you, so few Christians know and so few Christians exercise. You take the Word of God and you bring it into your own life. Verse 5, For in the day of trouble, He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent, He will hide me. That means when you are in your day of trouble, it says He will conceal you in His tabernacle, in His presence, in His home. Lord, conceal me in Your tabernacle. There is so much coming against me. Conceal me in Your tabernacle. It says, in the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. It is a beautiful thing to be hidden in God's tent and protected. He will lift me up upon a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. He will lift up your head. Let's let's move on down. And it says, let's skip on down to to verse, um, verse 13. Verse 13, Psalm 27, verse 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Look what he says. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired. But I believe that in this life, not just in the afterlife, I will see the goodness of the Lord in this life. Call that upon yourself the next time you are in struggles, the next time you feel overwhelmed. Call that upon yourself. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I want you to skip on over to to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. So just turn a a few psalms back to Psalm chapter 3. Because there's another psalm very much like this where David is fleeing from his enemies. But there's a particular verse here. Verse 4. Psalm chapter 3, verse 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and He answered me from His holy mountain, Selah. I was crying to the Lord. It is okay to cry before the Lord. I was crying to the Lord and He answered me. Now look what it says in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. This is a beautiful verse. You pray this prayer when you're really struggling with something and before you go to bed. I lay down and slept. 
I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Lord, give me sleep. Lord, I don't want to be waking up at night worrying about this thing. Lord, I pray that you give me sleep according to your word. Just as you did to David, I lay down and I slept. I mean, I just slept. I lay down and slept. Then I awoke for the Lord sustained me. You lay down and you sleep. You pray, Lord. Lord, give me sleep tonight. Lord, refresh me. The scriptures say he refreshes his loved ones even in their sleep. Lord, give me sleep tonight. So when you are so overrun by the little tribulations that are the things that afflict us in life, that are what we deal with on a daily basis, the Lord can give you sleep. Remember, if you learn to extract these things, you will be so much stronger. You will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever you do will prosper. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So when the world is just drying up, the Lord will give you strength. You will take on a totally different perspective. You can take two people facing the same situation. One person, it drives them to the grave. The other person thrives. How can that be? How can it be? You take the Word of God, you place it into your life, and watch the thriving of what can occur. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word. Lord Jesus, thank You for revealing for us the signs of Your second coming. And in addition to that, telling us what the signs are for the tribulation and what it would be like in the tribulation. And Lord Jesus, I thank You most of all because You give us encouragement for the things that come upon our own lives. And I pray for these young people that they would be able to extract from Your Word these precious truths. And Father, for those here that don't know You, may they give their hearts to Jesus. Lord, may they give their hearts to Jesus so that they could be drawn close to Him as well. So that they could see what it is to cry out to the Lord and see You minister grace and life to them. Father, I pray for these young people that they would learn to take Your Word and place their own name into it and see the power of God brought into their lives. And so even on those days when they have so much upon them that they can't even sleep, that You would give them rest and so sustain them, O Lord, I pray. Lord, for Your glory, in the name of Jesus. Amen.